Welcome to the IC Disc Show. Interviews with business owners, industry leaders, and tax experts sharing how the IC Disc can benefit your bottom line profits. Check out the show notes at icdiscshow.com. This show is brought to you by the IC Disc Alliance. Discover how the premier IC Disc consulting firms support you at icdisc.com. And by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Find out more at yourpodcast.team. Now, here's your host, Dave Spray. Hi, I'm Dave Spray, and welcome to another episode of the IC Disc Show. I had a really great guest today, Marvin Blum. And Marvin is one of the top estate planning attorneys in the country. And he has an amazing approach to estate planning. And he really focuses on the planning side. And he also talks about the head and the heart of it and how important it is to prepare heirs for the wealth that if they're unprepared, that's when oftentimes the bad things happen. It's a wonderful episode. He, uh, he's really just a, a delightful Southern gentleman. And I'm a little biased because he went to my alma mater. Uh, he has just a wealth of advice whether you have a large estate or a small estate. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Marvin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I really appreciate you making time to be on here. And I'm really excited to, to hear more about your background. So first off, are you originally from Fort Worth? Are you a native Fort Worthonian? What do you call a Fort Worth? Yeah, Fort Worthian. Yeah, Cowtown. Yeah, I'm proud of it. You know, it's funny. I grew up in a very sleepy little place Fort Worth, Texas, that people think is a small town because we're in Dallas, a shadow, and now we're like the 12th largest city in the country. And, and people don't know that. We try to keep it secret, but we love it here in Fort Worth. Yeah, I do too. I And it's funny how it seems like, you know, so I'm in Houston, as most people know, and it's funny, it seems like Dallas treats Fort Worth like a redheaded stepchild until <laughs> it comes time for bragging rights with Houston. And then suddenly it's the Metroplex that they want to count. They want to all of a sudden include Fort Worth for that purpose. Well, the good thing is each of these cities is unique, offers tremendous opportunities in their own way. So I'm a fan of all of these, Houston, Dallas, and Fort Worth. And I have a law office in each of those cities, and I also have a law office in Austin. So I'm a fan of all these big cities in Texas. For sure. Well, and speaking of Austin, I believe that you and I both attended the finest university known to man. Isn't that correct? Hey, I've got living proof of right here on my cup that I'm drinking out of. I am a Longhorn, hopeless Longhorn fanatic and happy about that. Uh, well, you know, my orange cup is the that I have is the Yeti Whataburger replica cup. Good for free refills in any Whataburger. So well, I'll just pretend that's burnt orange and we'll go sure. with it. For sure. So what what did you study undergrad at UT? I Well, I grew up in Fort Worth and I took off for UT thinking that, hey, I'm going to law school, so maybe I should major in something like government. And all my brother, my older brother was already there and he said, oh, no, Marvin, you're studying accounting. And I said, accounting? And he said, yeah, that'll be the best background for you. And you know what? My brother was absolutely right. I got an accounting degree. I became a CPA. And let me tell you, it was a perfect fit. I, I really found my niche with accounting and I could have stayed in that field forever, but I graduated very fast. I was in college all the five semesters and I got out. I've always been kind of in a hurry. 
Yeah. And anyway, I got out. I was way too young to be finished, but I took a job at Price Waterhouse. Yeah. And I in awe, and I and I and I thrived there. I loved it. But again, I was only 20 years old. It was just too young to be out of school. So I went back to Austin to University of Texas for law school and and joined up with my classmates down there and enjoyed it very much. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I like you have an accounting degree. I was a few years after you, just a few. I think a decade. I think we fixed yeah, that. More or less, more or less between friends. What's a so, decade? So then you got out of law school and then did you launch your own firm immediately out of law well, school or did you, you know, have an interim what, stop? Well, here's what happened. I, while I was in law school, I was sort of searching for the field of law that spoke to me. And I had a wonderful eureka moment. I, I took a course in estate planning from a man who I consider to be the national guru of estate planning. His name is Professor Stanley Johansson. And even though I graduated law school 45 years ago and Johansson had already been on the faculty for quite a while, Johansson is still on the faculty to this day. Is he really? Teaching wills and trusts and at University of Texas Law School. But he was my mentor. And so when I got out, I thought, you know, if I'm ever going to go to work for a big firm, I better do it now. And I interviewed and I took a job with a big law firm actually in Fort Worth because I wanted to come back home. And, you know, I figured out early on that I really wasn't the fit I was looking for. It, I always felt like estate planning was sort of a stepchild in the big law practice. It was never the glorified practice, the no. glorified transactional work and litigation that produced much more than fees. And I saw a gap. I felt like there was a gap that I wanted to seize to create a boutique estate planning law firm that would be focused mm-hmm. exclusively on planning for people to plan their estates. And, and I thought I would just do that solo. And lo and behold, I got very busy and I couldn't stay solo. So I have grown. Wow. So how many years did you practice at the big firm? I stayed there two years and I knew from the first day that I wasn't going to last. I would come home and tell my wife, I don't know when I'm leaving, but I am one day closer. Yeah, that's about and, how long I was at Arthur Anderson. And I knew pretty much on the first day that. Yeah, but I want to tell you, I learned a lot I, I, and I have no regrets. Sure. Because I, I it really, when you get out of law school, you don't know how to run a law office. And so in those two years, I learned how. And then I hung out my shingle and started the Blum Firm. It's been now over 42 or 43 years already. Wow, that's that's awesome. And well, and it's, I could imagine why the estate work really resonated with you. I'm imagining some of it is because you're a CPA, right? I mean, of all the disciplines, that seems like the one that's kind of the easiest transition. I mean, like, face it, litigation doesn't really transfer that much. But what and was it, about you? Am I on the right track? You're on the right track. Really, there were two two key reasons that I feel like it was the right fit. First is just what you said. I'm a tax guy to the core. I have a natural affinity to anything to do with tax. And I love complicated puzzles and solving problems. And I thought this is a field, estate planning is a field where I can really sink my teeth into something complicated and help people solve problems. The other aspect of it that I loved is it was very people-oriented, whereas some areas of the law, I would be sitting in a back office and never interacting with people. In estate planning, I knew that I would have the opportunity to engage directly with clients 
and help get into their heart and their head both and solve mysteries for them to help them plan their estates and deal with the their family dynamics issues and all the things that come into play with estate planning. I thought that's a fit for me because I love communicating with people. No, that's that that's great. And I would agree that based on my experience with large law firms, the estate practice does seem like, you know, if you just kind of round up the folks and you're like, hey, in our starting class of 20 attorneys, like let's rank them as far as who's going to be a rock star. It just seems like the estate planning guy no matter how much of a rock star he is, he just doesn't get the same, you know, attention. And yeah, I guess know. we, I, the Rodney Dangerfield would say we get no respect. <laughs> but you know what? That's okay. I own it. I am, like I said, I'm a tax nerd. I am not cool and I know it and I own it and it's all good. That is awesome. Yeah. My father in law, my father in law, my father in law used to say, Marvin, you're growing this estate planning practice. When are you going to hire a real lawyer? <laughs> and I'd like, say, you know, I'm a real lawyer, Abe. And he'd say, well, no, I'm talking about a guy who goes to court. And I thought, oh, okay, I'm not Perry Mason. So, you know, I didn't count. That is awesome. Well, talk to me a little bit about the opportunity you saw in the estate place. You said you, you mentioned that you kind of saw an opportunity. So, you know, so talk to me more about that. You know, I saw an opportunity because in the big law firm, estate planning was very much a fill in the blank process. And they told us, we charge very little for estate planning. And then when someone dies, that's when we make our money. We make our money on probate. Okay. And I thought, isn't that backwards? Shouldn't <laughs> we be putting more effort into the planning and get everything set up properly so that when someone dies, there's an easy transition and very little to do? So let's. Sense. Yeah. And they said, no, that's not how we do it. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know what? Maybe I ought to open a firm and do it my way. And you know what? My way resonated. I quickly began to grow. I mean, people began to see that we were taking a, an, a different approach where each client was unique. We were designing estate plans that made sense for that particular client. It was not a fill in the blank mm -hmm. process. And, and I got rewarded with a lot of referrals from these happy clients who started sending their colleagues and friends my way. The problem so, was I started to grow a whole lot and we got so busy that, I, like I said, I couldn't take care of it all myself. Sure. So, so or to put it another way to summarize, the big law firm's approach, their estate planning financial model was the model that made the most financial sense for the firm. And you had a model that you thought made more financial sense for the client. I think that would be fair. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that I can understand. Yeah. For my our own estate planning, it seems like so many estate planning attorneys that it's a form-driven business, you know, that's around the forms and when you go to the office and you've got the two witnesses that they, you know, grab out of the secretarial pool. And it just seems very procedural, mechanical. Well, and to that end, a lot of people think that when they have a will, they have an estate plan. And I said, well, you know, that's one piece. But that is really just one piece of an estate plan. An estate plan is far more than a will, and it's far more than tax planning. It's really, it really encompasses a whole lot more. It's, it has to do with designing an inheritance that makes sense for the future generations of your family, mm -hmm. setting up structures, entities, and trust structures in your plan to protect assets in case you get sued. It's, it's, it is about saving tax as well. But it's just so much more to it. And what my passion has become is really helping people design 
and create a legacy, something that's more from the heart that they pass down to future generations from generation to generation. I'm a Jewish guy and in, in my religion, we call it Lador Vador, which is you know, from generation to generation. I wanna help families succeed from generation to generation. All of that entails an estate plan, plus issues pertaining to disability. What if you're being, uh, what if you hit a period of disability and you need care during incapacity? Who's going to manage your affairs during that time frame? What are the medical decisions? I mean, there's so much more to this than a will. Sure. No, that 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 makes sense. So let's be kind of thinking about more from the client side. So based on the feedback you get from your clients, what do your clients say is kind of unique about your firm? You know, it's interesting. I I had an experience a few years ago that sheds light on that question. I'll tell that story. I got a call out of the blue from a family office out of state. They said, we're in the process of interviewing for new estate planning council, and we're looking all over the country. And the CFO warned me that this was going to be a very slow and deliberate process. I didn't hear back for six months. And then I got a call from the CFO saying, we vetted 50 law firms across the country. And we decided you're in first place. And I was just astounded because here I was at Fort Worth firm at that time with, you know, a team of younger attorneys working with me. And I nearly fell on the floor when I was informed. And I said, you now know more about who I am than I know. I said, would you tell me who I am? How come I'm in first place? And, And this is what I learned. They told me, we we like the size of your team because we, we have about 30 lawyers and they told us that, you know, this is a family that had a lot of projects all over the country. And they said, we need a team that would be big enough to handle all of this. And you can, with a bigger team, you have a deeper bench, you can divide and conquer. We like the age of your group. She said, what was very different about our firm is most of the people that they contacted were pretty old in years. And she said, we want a firm that will be around for the next generations. We've got G3 and G4 here, generation three, generation four. And what's very unique about the Blum firm is most of the lawyers in the Blum firm are young. I mean, I'm the old guy. at age. I'm the old man. But most of our team is, you know, we have 20s and 30s and 40s. And, you know, we have a lot of young people. And they said, that's unusual. She said, we studied the credentials and you hi- it's obvious to us that you hire only the best and brightest. We really have a terrific team and I'm very proud of that. And she said, I like the complexity of the tools you use. I can see that you all are very cutting edge. We're not afraid to wade out into the waters where we try techniques that other firms are maybe not as willing to go into. All of these are completely legit. It's just that they're very complicated and very few people do them. And if you have a small operation, I can see why you wouldn't, because you really wouldn't have the resources to be able to tackle sure. some of these types of transactions. But but we do. And so they told us, you know, all of these things contributed to why they were engaging us. And we were hired, this was about seven years ago. And probably do work for that family almost every single day ever since then in some respect or another, because as I say, they're all over the country. And that is astounding to me because when I created the firm, I never expected to have this nationwide footprint, but lo and behold, that's what's happened now. Wow. That's amazing. So, So it sounds like your practice is not just limited to Texas. 
How many different states do you have clients in? We have clients in almost every state now. Oh, and, wow. And I, it surprised me because I didn't, again, expect that. But we do federal tax planning. And when you do federal tax planning, we can represent clients anywhere in the U.S. on federal tax planning. Sure. Now, when we get into local planning, any, anything to do with their state law, we co-counsel with a lawyer in that state to help with that end of the work. But that's usually sure. the tiny part of the project. That may be, say, right. 10% of the project, but 90% of the project is federal law. And we can deal with that part all by ourselves. And so we're able to work with clients really all over the country now. And these people seem to all be in a network where they tell their friends and colleagues. And the next thing you know, we're getting a call out of the blue from some remote place. And I'm just really gratified by that. And and it really works out. Plus, I want to say that a lot of the trusts that we create are done in places like Delaware or South Dakota or Nevada. Mm. And, you know, when you're creating trusts out of state, again, it could you could be in any state and do that. You don't have to, you know, mm. be in that state. So that's very common now is for state planning attorneys to use out-of-state trust vehicles. You know, I can appreciate what you're saying because our ICDS practice is similar. It's a federal practice. And I think most of our clients are not even in Texas, even though that's where we're based. So, well, that's a great story about the about the family office. Thank you. So if you don't mind, why don't we dive down? I'm trying to balance. I want to get some meat to this interview, but I want to be careful that the layperson, you know, isn't losing interest. So you know, why don't we just kind of talk about sort of what's going on currently in, in estate planning? I know it seems like the exemption changes from time to time. Sometimes it goes up, sometimes it goes down. So why don't you bring me up to speed? What are some- you know, I've been practicing for 45 years in this area, and I got to tell you that the opportunities have never been better than they are right now. I, my colleagues and I refer to this as the time period as the golden age of estate planning. It's extraordinary, the tools that we are able to use. But I also will tell you that the golden age is probably going to one day go away. Sure. And so I want to give you some idea about why I call it the golden age, what's going okay. on right now. But I also want to caution everybody that it's it, time to take advantage of it is now because one day down the road, those doors will probably shut and the people who have already done the planning will likely be grandfathered. Sure. People who haven't yet done it will be out in the cold. And so the first piece of this has to do with the estate exemption that you just brought up. The estate tax exemption right now is the highest it has ever been in the history of our country. The estate tax exemption doubled right right after Donald Trump got elected and we had the Trump Tax Act. And it doubled the exemption temporarily. And it doubled it, but it had what we call a sunset date. And when the sunset date happens, everything goes back in half. So here's the deal. The estate tax exemption right now is about $13 million a person. Okay. It's actually $12,920,000, but let's just say round it to $13 million. That means if your estate's under $13 million at the time you die, no estate tax. But here's the catch. In less than three years from now, that exemption sunsets in half. I call this the Cinderella effect. And here's, let's picture Cinderella. Okay. Stroke of midnight, 2025, December 31, 2025, 
clock strikes midnight. I said, Cinderella's coach turns back into a pumpkin. Wake up the next morning and your exemption is no longer 13 million. Now it's like six and a half million. And those who locked it in, who used it before sunset date, December 31, 2025, those who used it get to keep it, get to keep the benefit. But those who didn't use it, lose it. So I'm referring to this as planning that we call use it or lose it. I see. Okay. Now, there are a lot of ways to use it. There's very creative ways because people think, oh, my God, do you mean to use this exemption? I have to turn around and go give $13 million away. Well, that would be one way. But most of my clients are not in the position to part with $13 million. And a couple, that would mean them parting with $26 million. No, that isn't likely to happen for most folks. Sure. So we have trusts that would allow them to, what I call, have their cake and eat it too. They get the assets out of the estate, but they're putting their assets into vehicles where they can continue to have three things. One is access to these assets for their own needs. Two, they can retain control. And three, they can retain flexibility. We can build in some flexibility so they're not locked in stone if they change their mind what they want to do. And these are different kinds of trusts. And without going heavy into detail, the favorites for married couples these days are called SLAT, S-L-A-T. It stands for Spousal Lifetime Access Trust. But there's others. There's the DIGIT or the IDIGIT. DGT is IDGT is intentionally defective grantor trust. I mean, it's an awful name, but you know, it's it, that's a tool. We love 678 trusts and also sometimes called beat it or beneficiary defective trust. We love islets, irrevocable life insurance trust. There's a whole lot of mechanisms that we can use. Grants, grantor retained annuity trust. There's ways that you can move assets into these trusts and retain what I was just talking about with this access and control and flexibility. And sometimes you're transferring assets in by making gifts. And sometimes you're transferring assets in by selling the assets to these trusts and carrying a note. So gifts and sales and and all of this stuff works, but it's now something that is suddenly on the radar of the public. And I want to tell you that There's a big wake-up call here because in 2021, not long ago, Congress tried very hard to shut down practically every tool that I just mentioned. So our toolbox right now is very rich. Again, we're in the golden age, but there was a push in Congress to almost empty out our toolbox. And frankly, they came within about two votes of pulling it off. I mean, if it weren't for the fact that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema didn't go along with the rest of the Democrats that prevented these laws from changing. But, mm-hmm. you know, look how close it got. And so one of these days, there will be a different landscape in Washington. And now that these duels are really kind of under the spotlight, I fully expect the day to come that Congress shuts these down. And what's the underlying aspect of that is it's kind of it's a policy it's a policy a public policy argument and really the policy is that there is a belief that we that dynastic wealth is unhealthy 
that, that we are allowing families to grow wealth to degrees that are so massive that it's not healthy for society. And so the concept is that we should take away these tools that are allowing people to avoid paying estate tax so that when a generation dies, 40% of the wealth gets paid to the government and you shrink the inheritance that passes down to the next generations. And so that's one reason. The other, of course, is we've got a big national debt. Have you noticed? And the country is going to have to come up with a way to start to pay off that debt. So I don't think we're looking at taxes going down in the future. I think we're all expecting taxes to go up in the future. And there's, there's, you know, you got to pay attention to the science. Sure. So this legislation that was proposed in 2021, and let me tell you, it was very cleverly worded. The key piece of legislation was proposed by Senator Bernie Sanders, and he entitled it for the 99.8%. Now, that's pretty clever labeling, isn't it? Because his point is, if we pass this legislation, it will help 99.8% of the population, and it will only hurt 0.2% of the population. Now, I would argue with that, frankly, because I think there is a trickle down that it will hurt more than that. But the mm-hmm. point is, you know, he's was able to generate a lot of public sentiment. Sure. Said, hey, this isn't fair. And then Elizabeth Warren got on the bandwagon and she proposed a billionaire's tax. And listen to this one. It's a it tax on unrealized gains, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's every year, every December 31, you tally up your net worth and you write a check to the government for the amount, for a percentage of the amount that your net worth went up over the year. So so you compare your net worth this December 31 to the prior December 31, and then you give a chunk of that to the government, even on unrealized gains. And the amazing thing about this is they call it a billionaire's tax, but it was drafted so that it applied to anybody who had a net worth of $100 million. Now, I don't know, when I studied math in school, $100 million was not a billion. I don't know. In in University of Texas, where we study (laughs) accounting and math, I don't think that we call that $100 million a billion, but they're, again, very clever labeling. And you know what? That stuff works. But um, So we're in an environment right now where the politics are very hot. Right. Well, and it also seems like that more people than ever believe that if somebody else has more wealth than you do, that they must have taken it from you yeah, one and, way or another. Yeah. You, and, you, you know, cheated, um, you, there, you there is that mentality. And remember when Obama kind of was very much into that, when he came out with the comment, he said, you know, you didn't build this. It was referring to businesses and that had grown. And yeah. And I'm not getting into politics because I could offend people very care- And I got to be very careful. You would not know how I vote. OK, I promise you. I am just reciting facts here. But there are there is a sentiment that that being rich is evil. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a congresswoman from New York, yeah. sort of said it very persuasively when she wore a evening gown to a Met Gala a couple of years ago. And when she turned around in this very expensive white gown, on the back of the gown were big red letters. And it said, tax 
the rich. And a lot of people remember that evening gown, but it said tax the rich. And Ocasio-Cortez, I mean, she got a lot of good press off of that. Now, she also got some criticism because of a very expensive dress. And it's like, wait a minute. So there's a there's an oxymoron here. But the fact is, there is a sentiment to tax the rich. So mm-hmm. I'm of the belief that the the taxes are going to go up. And that now I do think we have a two year window. I think we have a two year window of time between now and the next election where we probably are home free with the law as is because we have a divided Congress. And for legislation to pass right now, it would require the House, which is Republican controlled, barely, you know, to to agree. And so I think the likelihood of anything passing between now and December 31, 2024 is probably slim, although you never know. And I also caution you that some of this stuff changes not by legislation, but it changes by the executive branch. And the Treasury Department issuing new regulations, and they can screw up the planning tools, too, even if Congress doesn't pass new law. So really, like I say, time is of the essence. Now is the time to do it. Okay. So how about inflation? How is that impacting or does it have any impact? Yeah, it has impacted estate planning. And it's interesting. This sort of gets to the heart now side of what I do. I work with parents who have kids that are frankly struggling to make ends meet. You know, the cost of living in this country has gone up so much. And these young people are having a hard time. And so because of inflation and this rising cost of living, a lot of my clients who are parents have come to me and said, I really feel like I need to help out my kids. Do you have any suggestions or what I can do to help them out now and, and that are tax efficient ways to do it. And yes, indeed, we do. And because of the inflation and that we're in now, I'm, we're doing a lot of tools like parents saying, you know, instead of making my kids wait till I die to inherit, I'm going to start sharing with them. Now, I'm going to do it in a number of ways. I can make some gifts to them. There's the annual exclusion gifts. That you can just how much is that now? It's 17,000 a person. You know, in 2021, it was 15,000. In 2022, it was 16,000. And in 2023, it's 17,000. So it's inching up with inflation. And so that means, like, that a husband and wife, if they liked their daughter or son in law, they could give their the couple what is that, 68,000? That's right, husband gives 17 to their son and 17 to a daughter-in-law. Wife gives 17 to a son, 17 to a daughter-in-law. Your math is just right on it. That adds up to 68,000. And they can also pay directly for any education or medical expenses for the, their family, including their health insurance premiums. And oh, those kinds of things are not counted towards the 17,000. So there's that. Okay. Uh, And they're also making loans. I mean, interest rates are creeping up, but 
you can make loans to your kids. I mean, like a $10,000 loan, you can do it with no interest and there's no bad tax ramifications. You go above 10,000, you need to charge interest at the IRS rate, but but you, you can still, that's a more attractive rate than what the kids could go get from a bank. And, and they, they may not be able to even get a loan from a bank. Sure. I'm seeing parents carrying the home mortgage for their kids. It's like, I'm going to help my kids buy a house and I'm going to lend them the money and let them, I'll be the mortgage company for my kids. 529 plans for, you know, especially grant educating grandkids. I've got five grandkids. And I love my grandkids more than anything in the world. I mean, trust me, anybody with grandkids will know where I'm coming from on that. And the idea of grandparents setting up 529 plans to help their pave the way for their grandkids' education is very popular now because the parents literally cannot save the money to mm-hmm. pay for their kids' college education these days. It's mm-hmm. they're, Again, they're struggling to make ends meet. No, under, understood. And then, so speaking of inflation, you know, and of course, what goes along with inflation, but rising interest rates, yeah, uh, does that come into play? With yeah, and, and it really does, David. You're right on because interest rates are creeping up. And I heard on the news just yesterday, they're going higher and the stock market didn't like that. But, right. but the Fed keeps doing that because the economy won't slow down enough, fast enough without raising these rates. So, you know, but it's interesting with rising interest rates. One thing is we want to do some lending now to your kids and lock in the rate. You can lock in the rate for a very long time, maybe even like 30 years. And therefore, as rates continue to climb, you locked into it before it went up. But then there are a couple of techniques in our toolbox that actually work better when interest rates are high. Uh, one One of them is called a charitable remainder trust. Now, we hadn't heard a lot about this. It's sometimes called a CRT, a charitable remainder trust. We didn't hear a lot about it in the last few years because it doesn't work as well when interest rates were low. But as Mm -hmm. rates are creeping up, now we're hearing a lot more about them. Here's what you do. Let's say you have some assets that you would like to sell, but you don't want to do it because you'll incur a gain and you'll have to write a big check for capital gain tax. Yeah. So what you do is you create this charitable remainder trust. And this is a trust that says for the rest of your life, the trust will spill an amount of income out to you like an annuity. Every year, you're going to get money from it. And when you die, what's left in the trust is going to go to charity. Well, if you transfer these assets to the charitable remainder trust in kind, and then you let the CRT sell them, you don't write a check to pay income tax on the gain at that time. You defer it. And the income tax hit happens very gradually over the years as you withdraw the money from the trust. So instead of writing a check up front, you can postpone it and pay it gradually over the years and allows the family to hang on to the corpus and keep it intact. That's one. Another one that works better is called a QPRT, Q-P-R-T, stands for a Qualified Personal Residence Trust. So if a lot of my clients, their, their biggest asset is their residence, and sure. their residence is rising in value. And they think, how can I get this out of my estate but keep living there? Well, there's a tool called a QPRT that you can create. And you can transfer your house to this trust and get it out of your estate at a very reduced value. 
And the way it works is the house goes into the trust. You continue to live there for a period of years and you set that number of years at the outset. And at the end of those number of years, the house is now going to be owned by a trust for your kids and you pay rent to them for it. But during the time the trust lasts, you live there just like you do now. And the longer that term, the bigger the discount. So you may have a million dollar home that'll end up being valued at $500,000 for this to, because of this technique, purposes of getting it out of your estate. Now, here's the catch. You have to outlive the term. So the longer the term, the more you're discounting the value, but you got to see, but you got to outlive it. So you don't want to get too greedy here. You say, hey, well, if I do a 30-year term, I'm going to get more discount. I said, that's right. But how healthy are you feeling? Have you got a runway of more than 30? And if you do, then great. Now, I will say if you die before that term ends, you're not harmed. It's just the technique didn't work. The house is back in your estate as if you had not done it, as if you had not done the Cupid. But that's one that actually is working better with high interest rates, because actually with these high interest rates, so the discount's bigger. Sure. Well, in that charitable remainder trust, I heard a story that I thought was fascinating. There was a guy who owned a company called CD Baby. Derek Shivers is his name. And he sold it for like $25 million. And he put the entire amount in a charitable remainder trust. And he, but the charitable remainder trust basically pays him like, Four percent on that. Yeah, and you know what he did? I predict what he did is I'm going to switch the order of events a little. He created the CRT. All right, then he sold the company. He transferred the business to the CRT. I see. Okay, very important. And then the CRT sold the business. There you go. It's the order of events matters. Yeah, no, I think you are right. That's right, and the reason he did, and that's why he avoided paying the income tax hit on the sale. Because the trust sold it rather than him. And now he'll pay that tax gradually over his lifetime. Oh, and, I didn't and realize a, that. So that, that yeah. same million dollars a year is taking out. Some of that will be taxed. It's going to be taxed. It's going to take, it, it'll be taxed until he has wiped out that gain that was inherent there. But, but there's others who are doing The Patagonia company is one of the most famous examples of this right now. Patagonia, the owners of that company recently recapitalize the company. So it was 99% non-voting, 1% voting stock, something like that. And they transferred the non-voting stock to a charitable entity. Okay. And then if they sell the company, the charitable entity will sell that 99% and the money will go into the charitable entity and they will never pay income tax on that 99% portion of the gain. Wow. And then the money is available to provide for charitable causes that are meaningful to the Patagonia people. And in their case, it's to protect the environment and to address climate change. I mean, Mm -hmm. those are their big issues. So they created this entity. Now, because they created an entity that takes that takes a political position and is trying to influence legislation, it's an entity that was created as a 501c and not a 501c. I see. Um, and the difference there is that they don't get to take an income tax deduction for the value of the company that they put into the entity. But if they okay. do it to a 501c, listen to this. You put it in a 501c3, you're going to give it to a school or a hospital or, you know, that you can take a tax deduction for the value of it. The entity will then sell the company, get okay. the proceeds and never pay income tax. So you got a double whammy. 
Wow, that's a tax deduction, and then no one ever paid income tax. And now the money is in a pocket that can be used to benefit charities. Wow. Well, that's amazing. I can't believe how the time is flying by. I had a few other things I wanted to ask you about, but I'm going to kind of skip more toward the end. And so what I want to talk about is because up until now, we've really been talking about just trying to minimize transfer taxes, right? Or state taxes. And you know, by the way, and it's interesting, I think. I forget who the Republicans were a while back that basically rebranded the estate tax, the death tax. That's clever labeling, too. That was yeah, just like you were talking about. George Bush, 43, got elected on a, in a platform saying we're going to end the death tax. I said, well, that's clever. Yeah, it, it's it, one it of didn't those, happen. It didn't it's happen. It's one of those funny things. Most people don't care about an estate tax, but you talk about a death tax, and that gets even non-wealthy people kind of riled up. Is it just, you know, why yeah, should you be taxed just because you and, die? So the Democrats have their labeling and the Republicans <laughs> have their labeling. And the Republicans' favorite message is this is going to hurt the family farm right? and the closely held business. And they're right. These tools that if you take away these tools, it's going to deprive owners of farms and businesses. And, and so they keep they scream loud there. So, Marvin, why don't we switch gears now and let's talk about, you know, kind of legacy intention. You know, it seems like we've also heard stories of, you know, unprepared heirs receiving a billion dollars and it does more harm than good. What are you seeing? And is this something that that you feel like you can provide some guidance and wisdom on having seen these mistakes? I'm guessing. Have you seen these mistakes play out? Yeah, David, I really have. And I want to say, first of all, this applies to every family of any size net worth. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I'll tell you why. Because no matter what the um, amount of your wealth, no matter how much you have, you don't want to ruin your kids. And you don't want to pass money into unprepared hands of any size. Okay. Because money going into unprepared hands is can be like a loaded gun. It's, it can be very destructive. And so it doesn't have to be a billion dollars. It can be a tiny amount and it can be destructive. So what I am, I have seen too many examples of inheritance has gone bad. I'm sure we all have, but in my world, I see it all the time. And it was a wake up call because I said, as an estate planner, what can I do to help families improve Mm -hmm. the odds that this won't happen to them? And so I began to explore ways to prepare heirs so that when the inheritance comes their way, they're prepared to receive it. And I use the example of a football game because okay. this always speaks well to tech, especially Texas clients. So picture a football field. And at one end of the field, you have a quarterback who is highly skilled and he throws a beautiful pass down to the other end of the field. And at the other end of the field are standing these receivers who are clueless. They okay. have never been to a practice. They don't know the rules of the game. They don't know what's coming their way. Well, that football is an inheritance, okay? They have no experience working with each other as a team. They don't know how to manage this. As What are the odds that they're going to catch that football and go score a touchdown? Well, sure. research shows the odds are 10%. 90% wow. of families fail. And that's, again, regardless of the size of their net worth. But what that means is 90% of families, after three generations, it's shirt sleeve to shirt sleeves in three generations. 90% mm-hmm. of them dissipate. And these families are no longer a connected and healthy entity there to support each other through tough times. And so what I've discovered is the 10 percenters who are succeeding are doing certain things and let's copy them. 
first and foremost, they're having family meetings. They're bringing their family together to communicate. They're addressing issues instead of sweeping them under the rug. They're doing this with a third party in the room who is objective. I don't think that the patriarch or matriarch can run that meeting well. It needs to, they need to be a participant at the table, and there needs to be some third party in the room who has the heart skills to manage this conversation and help the family figure out what is this family's mission, what are their values, what do they have in common. I know they have differences, but what let's figure out the commonalities. Let's educate these people on 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 philanthropy and let's educate them on money and prepare them for what's coming their way so there are no surprises. So when that football comes to them, they'll know what to do with it. And so that's a big part of my practice right now is preparing heirs. And again, it doesn't matter the size of the net worth. Wow. And that's another way that your model benefits the client more than that model you saw 45 years ago, right? Of little planning. Yeah. Yeah. That was ignored completely. And and I'm going to be honest with you. Most estate planners still ignore it. They still ignore. Now I call this head and heart estate planning. I still very much, you know, do the head end of it. I love the head end of it, but I am now a head and heart guy. And I, for the last decade or so, I have really been researching and focusing on what what can we do on the heart side of this. And I've even come up with an idea called a of a trust. I, I got together with a colleague named Tom Rogerson. We came up with a trust called a fast F A S T trust. And what is a fast trust? No one even knows what it is. We're the only country who do it. Well, here's what it is. Mom and dad, while they're alive, will pay for all this family enrichment, family travel, family meetings and retreats, education exercises, preserving the family heritage. They'll pay for all that and they'll plan it. But let's say mom and dad die. Now you go to G2, the second generation, say, would you do all this? And frankly, they drop the ball. And so what this fast trust does is mom and dad put some money in this trust and they say this trust is to pay for family enrichment activities. It is not available to distribute to the children for their needs. It is available only to pay for things like family travel, family meetings, family enrichment activities, things that strengthen the family. Now you have the money in a pocket to do it. And frankly, the most efficient way to do it is through life insurance dedicate a life insurance policy and name it as the beneficiary. This trust is the beneficiary. And now you've got money in a pocket to pay for all that activity. And so, and the trustees of the trust will manage these things, make sure they happen. So, and it's frank, it's also a great tool for families who have what I call legacy real estate assets, like a lake house or a ranch Mm -hmm. house they want to keep in the family. But the kids, where are they going to get the money to maintain it? Well, you put it in this trust and now you fund the trust with enough to cover the maintenance costs and the trustees will manage the shared use of that property and keep the kids from going to war over it. So uh, there's some wonderful techniques out there. I tell everybody, you really ought to leave your kids three inheritances, a traditional inheritance like you're accustomed to a philanthropic inheritance, some money in a pocket that is dedicated to charity that the kids can manage and benefit causes that are meaningful to the family and a fast trust, which is a pocket that benefits the family. So those three. So we're in a new age of estate. That is really pretty cool. 
And when does like a private foundation or donor advised funds, because I know these terms, but I'll be honest, I really don't understand them. That's that second inheritance that I was referring to. The okay, that philanthropy part. The philanthropic inheritance, the most popular vehicles, you mentioned the two, a private foundation or donor advised fund. They're both fabulous. It's a family pocket, putting money into a pocket that is then committed to charity. If it's sufficient amount of money, say it's a million dollars plus, then maybe a private foundation will make sense. But for families who are not going that big, the, the administration is of the private foundation is intimidating. So they go private, they go with the donor advised fund. And that's a low cost way, low cost way of pocketing some money there that will be available to charity. And your kids can be named as the advisors and can direct to the, or can recommend to the donor, to the administrator of the fund where they want the charity to go. So, so they're, they, and they get around having to do all these complicated tax filings and complicated administration. That is, that is pretty cool. Well, if you just kind of go to the bottom line, what are, and you're kind of summarizing maybe a comment or question, you know, what comes to mind that you might just kind of wrap up this topic? Yeah, I guess three things. First of all, people say, well, I'm under $13 million, so I don't need to do estate planning. Well, I want to tell you that's wrong because you need to, no matter what the level of net worth. And by the way, it's not what the exemption is today that matters. It's what it is on the day you die. Right. And it's not what you're worth today that matters. It's what you're going to be worth on the day you die. So if you're here and your estate's growing, that number that you're growing to is what's going to matter. So I think most people that think they don't need to do planning very likely do need to do it. Number two is the is the fact that families are procrastinating. I think the biggest obstacle in estate planning is putting this stuff off. People hate to deal with it. And so they put it off. But I'm, again, the ambassador for saying that's very risky. And we learned that during COVID-19. I mean, we all are mortal. And and the day is going to come that we're no longer here. And even your kids, your adult kids even need wills and estate planning documents, powers of attorney, et cetera. If your kids are 18 or over, they need it too. And so I feel like that. And then the final comment is if you own a family business, I think the family businesses are the worst procrastinators of all because most mm-hmm. business owners think they're going they act as if they're going to live together. I mean live forever. Right, right. Act as if they're going to live forever and they're not taking steps to figure out how this business is going to run when they're gone. Yeah. Like when they'll say, "Oh, I'm indispensable." And I said, "Well, Charles de Gaulle, who was the leader of France, once said, cemeteries are full of indispensable people." Sure. They will come. So I especially caution business owners to do some planning so that the family is not left in the lurch when the business owner is gone. Okay. Well, I've got just a couple more questions for you that are a little more kind of on the fun side. So the first is, you know, I know we all have and have all seen these stories where unprepared beneficiaries, you know, end up dropping the ball. But Give us an inspiring story. Think about maybe one of your clients where it maybe seems like that it had a really great outcome. Maybe they were in one spot and they made some changes and it did better. Maybe the family was in all this strife in the estate planning broad. Well, what maybe give me one or two stories to inspire the audience. 
I write a weekly blog. Anybody who wants to get on the email list to receive my blog, if they will notify you and you get me their email address, I if you can get me that email address, I'll add. How about if they just notify you? Can they just email you? That would be. And what's your email? So my name is Marvin Blum. Okay, so the email address is M Blum. So M B L U M at the Blum Firm. T H E B L U M F I R M dot com. And just in the subject line, say add me to the add me to your blog. Yeah, and I'll get them to it. And so this last week, I wrote a blog that had three examples of families that I think have beautiful outcomes. But these were all business owners, and one of them owned a business that he was about to sell. And he's the guy that you kind of were talking about earlier. They figured out that their kids were already set up and established in good careers. So they said, "Before we don't really need to pass more inheritance down to our kids. So they created a charitable remainder trust, just mm. like your guy. They gave the business to the trust. The trust sold it. And then the husband and wife collect an annual annuity. He now deceased. The wife is still getting it. And when mom and dad are both gone, the balance of that trust is going to go to a charitable foundation that will pass money out to charitable beneficiaries. And I tell that story. Another one of my clients, it was a similar deal. They they owned a business and they got an offer out of the blue for, for that they thought was way more than their business was worth. And they were astounded and they thought, oh my God, we better grab it. And I said, don't, because there may be someone out there who'll pay even more. And at our urging, they hired a broker and lo and behold, they got four more offers that got into a bidding war. Nice. They ultimately sold the business for four times the original offer. That they thought cash. was already high. Yeah. And it got, they got four times that all cash. Wow. And, and the good thing is this family had been doing some transferring of this business gradually along the way, what I call kind of Sam Walton planning. My poster mm-hmm. child is Walmart, Sam's Club, because yeah. they got it. You know, when Sam created Walmart, he gave away 80% to his four kids. He put 20% in each of his kids' names. That's vicious. I heard that. So he made that. And, you know, it was worth nothing back then. Right. Well, my client was doing this too. He's giving them slices of the company. And then when they sold the business, the kids each got some and they said, that's enough. And this family created a family foundation. Mom and dad are running it and giving money to the found, uh, yeah, giving money to charity. And when they die, their whole estate goes to the foundation. So there you go. I mean, it's cases like that are very heartwarming. The kids are well off, but the kids have also been trained. Mm-hmm. What to do? They bring them into a room and they bring in speakers and they teach them what to do with money. And then they're learning to be very philanthropic. And what I have found is philanthropy is very powerful glue to keep a family together because you oh, can bring your kids together into a room, figure out what causes the family wants to support, manage the foundation together as a team. And the family stays connected. And frankly, though, causes benefit the family gets back more than it gives. Sure. Oh, that's, that is great. Well, as we are coming down the home stretch, I have two more fun questions for you. So the first is if you could go back in time and give advice to your 25 year old self, what advice might you give yourself? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is I sure worried about a lot of things that never came to pass. <laughs> I'd like was to- that. Was that Mark Twain? I, I, maybe so. I don't know. But I can tell you that I had a lot of sleepless nights worrying about th- what ifs and those what ifs never happened. So I guess my advice would be to let's stay positive 
and constructive and let's engage in this kind of planning from a positive standpoint and instead of from worrying let's be and let's get in front of it and and frankly you want to know the truth most of the worrying had to do with my kids sure and i have a feeling i'm not unique i'm a member of an organization called tiger 21 tiger right. 21 has a lot of people in it kind of like me who come together as a peer group when we help each other we're kind of a personal board of directors for each other okay and we guide each other on things that are bothering us. And if you ask these guys, what keeps you awake at night? Almost every one of us says it's our family. Ah. It's, it's not our money and it's not our investments. Mm. It's worrying about our family. It's worrying about our kids turning out. Wow. Yeah. And you know what? My kids have turned out great. I worried and my wife and I worried and then they turned out great. Okay. So I'm very yeah. proud of them. But, you know, I worried too. I worried unnecessarily. Oh, that is great. In fact, I believe the website is tiger21.com for anybody who wants to learn more about it. All right. The last two questions. Is there anything I should have asked you, but I didn't? Oh, man, I think you hit it really well. I do think that COVID changed the landscape a lot. I think that the world of estate planning after the pandemic is different than it was before, because again, I think we all did become aware of our mortality. And I think we also became aware of family dysfunction. A lot of us were sheltering at home together, and you could no longer hide from the fact that there's some family dynamics that were needing to be addressed. And I want to tell you, put me on the list. I had it too. I'm a cobbler with my own shoes. And my wife and I had our two adult kids and their families living with us. And we discovered some stuff that needed to be addressed. And my buddy, Tom Rogerson, who I mentioned earlier with the Fast Trust, came to the rescue to help us communicate with each other and address those issues. So it applies to me too. Okay. That is good to know. Well, the last question, and this is just a fun one. Now, you're just supposed to answer this the first thing that pops into your mind, okay? Because we're in Texas. So, barbecue or Tex-Mex? Oh, that's not fair. Okay. And both is not the right answer here. Okay. I- I'm going to go Tex-Mex. We have a favorite spot in Fort Worth that we go to, and it has a patio that makes you think you've gone to Mexico. It's called Joe T. Garcia's, and it is heaven on earth. And you you walk into these gates and all of a sudden you're in paradise. And my family loves to go there and escape the world. And my grandkids love it. So I, I'm going to have to go there. We spent New Year's Eve there this year. Oh, that's awesome. And, I, I asked that question to all my guests. And one of them answered it. And I think he's my answer. He said, if I knew the barbecue was going to be like really exceptional, but... Or if I know both foods were going to be exceptional, I would take the barbecue. He said, if I was told on the front end, there was no promise of quality. It was just kind of random Tex-Mex or random barbecue. He said he'd take the Tex-Mex because it feels like Tex-Mex has more tolerance for imperfection than the barbecue. (laughs) Well, this place has margaritas and a lot of people kind of, I think, don't really taste much what they're eating. That is awesome. Well, Marvin, this has really been fun. I have really learned a lot and I'm sure my listeners will as well. Well, it's my honor. Thank you very much, David. Sure. Can I just say one closing comment? And that is 10 years from now, I want everyone to look back and be very proud of what they did back in 2023 to set their family up for success. That's perfect. Great way to close. 
Thanks, Marvin. Thank you, David. There we have it. Another great episode. Thanks for listening in. If you want to continue the conversation, go to icdiscshow.com. That's ic-disc-show.com. And we have additional information on the podcast, archived episodes, as well as a button to be a guest. So if you'd like to be a guest, go select that and fill out the information. And we'd love to have you on the show. So that's it. We'll be back next time with another episode of the IC Disc Show.